Good morning. Was it was it just me or did she say pumpkin? I don't think that's how you spell that. So a few things that um, popped up this week in the news, some things that I think uh, were noteworthy. It said uh, Target made a, mis- uh, a mistake. They've made a lot of mistakes. Target made a statement that said that they will close nine stores in major cities, citing violence and theft. Um, this is, I think this had something to do with the uh, summer of love and peace uh, in Oregon and California and places like that. This is, this is a result of, of that stuff. I was just watching again. It's almost, it seems like almost every week now that some city erupts with people just going and, and breaking in all the stores and stealing all the stuff. Um, they, they can blame it on whatever they want. They can claim it's whatever they want. But at the end of the day, these are just thugs that are wanting to break into stores. That's what that is. Um, and the reason that they feel like they can do that is this is in areas that, um, that they know they can get away from it, away with it. Um, in other words, the police will not be doing anything or they'll be mild at best because of many other policies that make that weak. But here's another thing that I think maybe when I first read this, because I read the article, and, um, and it seemed like there was a little more to it than that. I think that there's also a chance that it wasn't just theft and violence, but there's a possibility that it's um, you go woke, you go broke. That's, that really is what's happening, too. And we don't really seem to be getting enough uh, media play on this, even in the kind of the conservative thought process. But, uh, but how many companies does it take before some of these companies start realizing uh, you better not do this stuff? Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't drink beer, um, but I was definitely, you know, standing with everybody against Bud Light, Right? <laughs> They're like, we're not going to buy Bud Light. I'm not, I'm not either, although I don't really ever buy Bud Light. But, but um, Disney, Disney is crashing and burning right now because of years and years of this philosophy. Uh, and Target is one of these places. He, here's how you know. He, here's how you know. Is um, uh, What was it, three weeks ago? I mentioned this in service. But Starbucks re- released a statement that they will uh, not be... Um, specifically celebrating any of the um, LGBT stuff in their stores? Well, why? Why would Starbucks, one of the most liberal companies out there, not do that? Because you go woke and you go broke, and they've been in some major lawsuits, and they're probably very cash poor right now, and, uh, and they just don't want to take the chance. The, the, some, of these, some of these places just are not getting it. So... So this, this is something, because I do hear this regularly. Now that I'm, I am such a powerful political figure, I get these, I get these questions all the time. Is, um, well, the, the, so the first half of the question is, do you ever feel powerless when you go in there, into the house? I, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I can't accomplish anything, but it's not in myself that the power resides anyway. And so do I feel powerless in the natural sense? Yes. But if, if God is going to take time out of running the universe to come to me and say, hey, I want you to do this, I want you to run for that, then there's got to be a reason. And, and the reason is oftentimes much more than just this mentality of, are we getting a bill passed or something like that, right? So 
Then the next part of the question is, is what is we as the average person, what can we do? Because you've you got to feel, in today's society, you've got to feel very powerless um, as just a, a citizen, right? We all do. Uh, the thing is, is you actually have a lot more voice and a lot more power than you think you have. Um, you can determine where your resources go, which is one of the most powerful things in Western society you can do. Spend money on some things, don't spend money on other things. You boycott stuff, and it makes people pay attention you, because you're hitting their pocketbooks, and that's ultimately what these companies, well, used to be that ultimately what these companies care about. Nowadays, they care about their agenda even more than that, which is weird. If I'm a business owner, it should be about making money, but uh, they care about their agenda. So, so use your power that you have. Another thing, I know I pick on this sometimes, Get involved in some kind of political thing. Get, in, get involved as a school board member or a city council or a commissioner or a something. There's tons of stuff out there. Some of them you don't even have to get elected. You can just get hired by somebody that is elected. Do some things. Um, I've had people just ask me, well, I couldn't run, from, run for the house like you did. I don't, you know, I don't have lots of money and stuff like that. <laughs> when I won... The, at the assembly, when I won the primary and I, was, and I won enough votes to eliminate the other two people, I hadn't even opened a bank account yet. I'd been in the race for two weeks. I didn't have signs. I didn't have anything. I had no money. I, I didn't, it, this isn't because I am this wealthy individual that decided to run. In, in Colorado, it's a caucus state. You can run as a common person with no money. Some of you are like, I'm going to do it. I hope. I have not my district, but I hope. <laughs> no, actually, I, I'll help you. <clears throat> Another thing that I read this week that I thought was interesting, and the reason I think this is so interesting is because it's actually being um, uh, discussed. It's actually been being reported, which is, which is interesting to me because for the first two, two and a half years of uh, COVID, everything was reported the opposite. But this... A study came out, CDC has been talking about it, NIH has been talking about it, so I, I don't know. But the fact that uh, breastfeeding mothers pass the mRNA from the vaccine to their children. Now, I think any, any mother that's ever breastfed knows that's true. I, I watched this as a husband. I don't mean to watch it, that'd be weird, but I... Uh, as a husband, I noticed that when my wife ate Mexican food, the baby reacted. Amen. Right? <laughs> you guys know what I'm saying? Right? I, I even, in first service, I even said when my wife ate Taco Bell, but then I think people thought that was Mexican food. That's not Mexican food. That's Taco Bell. Totally different. But, uh, but when the mother breastfeeds, you pass stuff to the child. But here's the, the problem with this is mRNA is actually affecting the baby's uh, overall, uh, the composition of the baby. This is the, the, the weird part and the sad part. This is why doctors are reporting now at, at great levels um, that there's huge rise in heart attacks, not in 65 or 75-year-olds, but in 25-year-olds. And that, that um, coroners that do work and, and even um, funeral home people that, that embalm bodies 
are noticing all this fibrous tissue throughout veins that has never been there. They've never seen this stuff before. That's what's being passed to the baby uh, from the vaccine. The weird part to me about it is that they're reporting it. That's the part that's making me raise my eyebrows and, and investigate this, is why are they reporting it? Because they've been lying about it for three years. Why all of a sudden are they saying, oh, yeah, all the stuff that all the kook people have been saying forever is now true. You know, all the conspiracy theory people that were saying maybe the vaccine isn't good? Well, now that's actually the truth, and the CDC is reporting it. Those are the kind of things that make me pause and go, well, I need to investigate this more. Because when liars start speaking truth, you should pay attention. Because that means there's more to it. Just, I don't know what it is yet. I'm just saying pay attention to that. It's the best I can get to a conspiracy theory because all my conspiracy theories are coming true. I've got to have something else. So now I'm just being really vague. <laughs> all right. So I, I mentioned, I mentioned uh, last week that the uh, landscaping was going to start down over here. The, the landscaping company is uh, uh, really busy, so they're not going to start until a week after next. So um, specifically, if you're like, I'm going to give, and then you show up and nothing is happening, uh, this, isn't, this isn't a scam. We really are going to do the landscaping. Uh, it's just, and this is just part of the building. It's part of our expansion. It's part of the stuff. We're just trying to do anything we can before we get to um, next spring, and hopefully we get a loan next spring. Um, we wish we'd already had one or we'd be building right now. So, so if you have any questions about any of that, hopefully you'll see that starting next week. You'll see some of those kind of things. But we do want to have that 77000 um, paid off by the end of the year if you want to contribute to that. So in, in uh, looking, I've been talking over the last couple of weeks of, the last uh, couple of months actually, of the, 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 there's going to be some difficult subjects, and I've addressed some of these subjects, and I've got some more on the horizon that are, that are kind of difficult subjects. As Christians, we have to deal with this stuff. We have to look at this. Um, because of a conversation I had two weeks ago about, you know, how, how do I develop messages? Where does it come from and all this stuff? I just wanted you to know to process this with me, my desire in these kind of things is that we grow, that we have opportunity to mature. Okay, I am not, I have never been, I will never be a pastor that just wants people to just um, have a little good pep talk and go home. Um, to me, that's, that's wasting your time, it's wasting my time. Let's really get in scripture, let's really see what God is trying to tell us. This is something I didn't, I wouldn't necessarily this as a young man. Um, I did start embracing it, I think, younger than some people do. This idea of really letting the Holy Spirit change you and grow you and mature you. I did start seeking the wisdom of the Lord and, and the Lord to mature me. But really, to be honest, I kind of did that selectively, like all of you do. Um, I selectively wanted God to mature me into specifically the last 10 years, I've just gotten to the place now where I'm just like, God, I just want what you have. I don't care what everybody else thinks. I don't care what, I don't care what society thinks is good or bad. I don't, none of that is important. Lord, you change me. You mature me. You make me what you want me to be. I wish in some specific areas of life that I would have done this earlier. One specifically is parenting. I wish I would have, I wish I would have done a better job early parenting, seeking... Seeking God, seeking his will, his presence, those kind of things. I wish I would have done that. I know I would have been a better parent. I've always been an amazing husband, but I wish I would, I wish I would, have, uh, <laughs> wish I would have sought God more in those kind of things. Right, and now I think all of us would say that. Right? There's, thing, there's things we look back on and say, God, I wish I would have done this different. 
Well, here's the thing. That's a reality for all of us. But what you can do, and this is where it kind of clicked in my head quite a few years ago, is instead of just looking back and saying, God, I could have done that better, better, differently or whatever. Why don't I just say right now, God, make me everything you want me to be. And then I won't be looking back at this moment, 10 years from now saying, I wish I'd have done better now. Right? God, lead me, guide me. And so with all of these subjects and all this stuff, I wanted to, to put this one in here because I think this is, I think this is crucial in the understanding the maturation process is to say, and we're just going to look at what salvation is this morning. I, I think about, we use terms First salvation, um, it's a good term, it's a scriptural term, but I do think that it has changed uh, definition culturally in America for so many years. It's been slowly tweaked and tweaked and tweaked that uh, what being saved, what does it mean to, when you say I'm saved? What does that mean, I'm saved? Um, how would you define that? How does scripture define that? Does scripture define it? It does. What does it mean to be saved? Um, what is the difference between saved and redeemed? I don't think we process that some. Uh, we kind of include all this stuff together because it is all the same subject, but it's different aspects of this same subject. To be redeemed. I like the term uh, redeemed better than I like the term salvation. But that's because of the way American church uses it, not because of the definition of the word, but the way we use it. I think the term saved has become such a trite term that it doesn't mean what it actually is supposed to mean. Um, and th this idea of Christian, too, when you use the word Christian, what does Christian mean? Um, I think we have so changed that in American society that we don't necessarily, we don't have the same definition for Christian. In fact, there are some statistics that have been done. This is one of the, this is one of the cool things about um, being in elected office is you have people that do things. Some are directly hired by you, and then some are part of other larger groups that do a lot of stuff for you. One of those is find information, tell you stuff. Um, I, get, I, get, I get about four to 500 emails a day, and uh, those, a lot of those are different groups that are trying to give me information. Two-thirds of them, I don't care. But, um, but there's some really good stuff out there, and these are people that, have, that do this specifically for me and people like me, okay? Um, some of these things that we're finding out statistically in religion and how people look at religious mentalities, which is tons of statistics. I get more of that because I, I, I plug into those RSS feeds and stuff, and that's where I'm getting the information. But the idea of Christian or the definition of the word Christian has changed greatly in the last 20 to 30 years. The definition of Christian used to be somebody that had accepted Jesus as their Savior and was following him. In other words, the word means... I'm Christ-like, okay? So I'm going to be like Christ. I'm following Jesus. I've given my heart to Jesus. I'm a Christian. But the definition has become in American society now that you, are, that you were born and raised in a Christian uh, country. And m it has even slowly worked its way into a tag-on definition, which, which I, I speak against all of this stuff anytime I get a chance. But it usually has to do with you were born and raised in a white Christian country, okay? Um, whether, whether you know anything about the Bible, where do you go to the church or not or whatever, it doesn't. A lot of people that are, that are calling themselves Christian are because they were born in America and at one time maybe grew up in the church or went to church or grandmother was a Christian or something, 
Okay? That's why I ask more questions when, when I hear somebody, when I'm, when I'm trying to witness to somebody, and, and, I'll, and they'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. Used to be back in the day, 20 years ago, I would come across this regularly, and and because um, I do witness, and I try to witness a lot to people, and I would, and I would hear, they would say, um, well, yeah, I go to so-and-so church. I'm a Baptist. I'm a Methodist, whatever. And I would always say, that's not the question I asked you. I didn't ask you, do you go to a church? I asked you something. The question was usually something along the lines of, do you know Jesus as your Savior? Have you given your heart to Jesus? Um, if you died right now, what would happen? I used to ask, uh, do you go to heaven or hell? But I don't ask that anymore because I want them to answer the question from their perspective. If, some, if you died right now, what would happen? Because you can get some crazy answers. If you just say, do you, would you go to heaven or hell, you're limiting their scope of how to answer your question. So, but nowadays, I don't do that because of denomination or church. I do it when, I, when they say, well, I'm a Christian. Well, what does that mean to you? When you say you're a Christian, what does that mean? And very rarely do people get directly to the correct answer quickly. Usually, well, I have a religious mindset. And all this is cultural, right? They can't say, I believe Jesus is my Savior. He died on the cross for me, and I've accepted him, and I'm on my way to heaven. You can't say that stuff nowadays. You have to, you have to couch it. You have to spin it, parse it, all this other stuff. Well, you know, I have a religious mindset, um, I look at the world through religious eyes. I get that one nowadays, religious eyes. Well, for, for me personally, my experience personally over the last 30 plus years is religion is the most destructive thing there is. It's the most dangerous thing. It has, it has killed more people than, uh, than governments. or any, It's religion. That's not being a Christian. Same thing as... Somebody being born in India and says, I'm a Hindu. Most people, because see, in India, you have to actually put it on your, um, like your uh, documentation, what religion you are. So you have to say, well, I'm Hindu, or I'm Muslim, or I'm Christian, or whatever. People will put Hindu. That doesn't mean they're, they're practicing Hindu. M many, many people in Hin India are not practicing Hindus. But they put Hinduism. The same thing if you if you were born in, in Iran, you're gonna say you're a Muslim. It doesn't mean that you that you believe deeply in Muhammad and his direction and your for your life and that Allah is your God. That's not what that means. It means you're born in a Muslim country. So what about you? How do you define salvation? How do you define redeemed? Jesus is our Savior. He's our Redeemer. What does that mean? They're, see, they're not the same thing. That's part of the reason I'm saying this. What about being a Christian? How do you define that? Well, I prayed to accept Jesus one time. But see, Christian actually means Christ-like. I follow Jesus. The same struggle I've had for years and years and years since I actually began to first look at the Bible from the point of view of studying words and things. When John 3.16 says that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life, we, it is so difficult for us in American society to understand that because we think the word believe is a cognitive association. And that's not how they, a Jewish person would have seen that 2,000 years ago. It has to do with their whole existence. Their entire existence is wrapped up with this understanding that Jesus is the reason that I exist 
Okay? First point of this, salvation. 1 Thessalonians 1. Verse 10, and they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. When we use the term saved, just think about this. Take, take the word saved and put it in any other context. Take it out of a Christian mentality and put it in something else. They saved me. That person saved me. From what? There is, there is some impending tragedy that they're talking about or something. They saved me from the, my house burning down. They, they saved me from the, the thief that was breaking into my home. They saved me. That's not... That's, we, use, we usually use the terminology more softer, and this is, by I believe, by intention of the church to soften the message of salvation. This is obviously Satan trying to mess with us. But I've even used this many times before that I think the biggest thing that God saved me from is myself. Right? But that's actually more in the concept of redeem, not in saved. Because the most important thing that God saved me from is not actually myself. When I'm living my life out pragmatically and in, in, in daily existence, yes, the biggest thing that I can understand and get, get my mind wrapped around is I am my own biggest problem and Jesus saves me from my own self, my direction, my path, my, my life. I, I'm going to talk about that, but that's not salvation. That's redemption. When it says Jesus saved me, he says right here from the coming judgment that there really, is, there really is something of impending doom and tragedy on the horizon. And Jesus came to save me from that and let my path now be towards something that is not doom. But it's something else. He saved me. He's my Savior. He is my Redeemer also, yes. But he's my Savior. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us from what? Getting what we deserved. That's called mercy. He saved us from what we deserve. We deserve... Think, think about this. this, this we, we have a horrible way of doing this as humans. Specifically, when we're talking about ourselves, we, we think of how we're not really that bad. Everything's kind of okay, right? And then we have questions like, well, how could a loving God send anybody to hell? When you're standing before God at the judgment, he is not sending you anywhere because of a decision he made. The decision he made was to send Jesus Christ to give us opportunity to be saved, to be reconciled with God and forgiven. That's the decision God made. When you're standing before God at judgment, you're standing there to be judged for the decision you made or did not make. Not God's decision. I, I have worked with... Um, for, for quite a while now, I guess, with um, people that have been trafficked, human trafficking. Um, and some of these are directly, 
I've, I've worked directly with the people. I also sat on the board of uh, Sarah's Home for a while. And uh, Sarah's Home houses girls that have been rescued out of trafficking. Under 18 girls have been rescued out of trafficking. And I've interacted with Sarah's Home as the board member. Um, some with the girls, uh, not much because I'm a guy and that's not a good idea. Um, and, and just to be a part of this. And so when the movie Sound of Freedom came out, to me this was like, this is all around us everywhere. The, the reason I'm saying that is because I really believe that that movie was very eye-opening for a lot of people. And, and that's good. That's important. But to me, we should have had our eyes open years ago about this stuff. But the church has not been good about this. And society intentionally covers this up. It's easier for us just to pretend like it doesn't exist. But it is, it is horrible what people do to people. What humanity is capable of. Some of these girls, thinking a couple girls specifically, that by the time they came to Sarah's home, they were 11, 12, something like that, and had been uh, being prostituted for years and years and years. Usually... Statistically, most of the time, that starts because the mother prostitutes them. It is, it is horrible what human beings can do to other human beings. And then we, we say things like, well, well, yeah, but I'm not part of human trafficking. But we know it's out there. Do we do something about it? Do we care about it? Well, I'm not part of that stuff. It, this, I've been processing this so much, part of because I've um, been listening to and connecting with um, Eric Metaxas' stuff a lot recently. Um, was at a conference he was at, these kind of things. And, he, and he's trying to warn the church right now in America that um, we look just like the church right before uh, Hitler began massacring the Jews and during that time. That the American church looks just like that. You say, well, we're not killing Jews. Yeah, we are. We're killing Jews and, and Asians and Hispanics and black people and white people. We just kill them before they come out of the womb when we know for sure exactly what they're going to look like. But we murder them in mass. It's amazing what humans can do to other humans. And then we say, well, I, you know, I, I disagree with abortion in that enough, but what are we doing about it? This, this is the thing where we say, okay, God, I know you're in charge, but do we? Do we think like that? Do we live like that? Well, there's judgment coming. Well, do we think like that? Do we live like that? This is what Jesus saved us from. And to see, the first part of this concept of salvation is mercy. God does not give us what we do deserve. That's what mercy is. You deserve punishment. You deserve, as human beings, the, the idea that somehow we deserve anything from God is horribly narcissistic. We, we deserve nothing from God. We treat Him horrible. And you'd say, well, I think I'm a pretty decent Christian. Scripture says when you get to the very height of Christianity, the best of the best, you know, the Mother Teresa kind of stuff, then, then your life has just got to the point of filthy, smelly rags. That's what Jesus uh, tells us in his word. 
So, so why, why do we think we deserve? This is part of American culture that has just become bizarre. It's always been there, but it's, it has become over the top so much that, we, that, that there's no personal responsibility. That it's not my, Whatever happens is not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's, it, it's, it's my mama's fault. It's my dad's fault. It's, it's, it's uh, the neighborhood I lived in. It's my skin color. It's the, it's the horrible persecution of American capitalist somebodies or something. Somebody the other day called me a white nationalist. Actually, I've been called that a lot. Newspapers, all kinds of stuff. But they called me a white nationalist, and I kind of broke that down in my head, and I said, well, I am white, and I do believe in my country. I guess I'm a white nationalist. I've been called a Christian nationalist. Well, I am a Christian. I do believe, I guess I'm a Christian nationalist. But that's become like a negative thing. What, what, what do you, as a pastor, what should I be, a, an, an uh, atheist anarchist? I've never been called that. I don't want to be called that. Christian nationalist, I guess I'm okay with. I know they're using it in the wrong way. I know what they're saying is not what, I'm, what the actual words mean. But the idea of... of who we are and how we can treat each other and what this means in society. As we all deserve, we all deserve punishment, judgment. Say, I'm a good guy. I'm not arguing against that. I think you're all wonderful people. But at the end of the day, if you're honest with yourself, when you look in the mirror, you know what you're capable of and you know what your thoughts do. You know how... Uh, as scripture says, Satan is crouching at your door. If you're honest with yourself, you know what that means in your life. The idea that you are above any kind of temptation. or any, I, saw, I, I saw statistics the other day that said it was something like 71, 72% of all, um, of all people have considered uh, murder and, and thought it through at, at least once in their life. And I thought, I think that's a little low. I'm not trying to be funny. I think pretty much every person has considered murder at one particular time in their life. It's who we are as humans. We can get so angry, so hateful, so upset over a situation. Now, it's, it's maybe not like, you know, planning this whole scenario out, but but somebody cuts you off in traffic and you're telling me you've never thought, I wish their car would just explode or something like that. I'm the only one that's ever thought something like that. I need some more amens here. First thing is mercy. He's given us mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out His Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of His grace, see, before His mercy not getting what we do deserve. Now he's about to show you grace where he's going to give you something that you don't deserve. Because of his grace, he has made us right in his sight. That God looks at us. This is straight out of Ephesians 5. That God looks at us and he sees us as perfect and holy without any spot or blemish. 
There's no way that's really us. We are not perfect. We are not without spot or blemish, except that Jesus gives us grace and makes us that way. And how does he do it? This is the weird spiritual story that to me is so ironic. It's, it's, it's bizarre, the actual story of salvation, that Jesus makes me perfect without spot or blemish. He makes me holy. He presents me back to himself as perfect, but how does he do it? He does it with his blood. How did we get the ingredient of blood in this story? He gave his own physical life so that blood could be poured out on me so I could be forgiven and made perfect. That makes no sense, except for one thing, which I talked about last week. Jesus loves us so unconditionally. He loves us so much. We will never be able to understand that. The fullness of his love, I think we're going to spend all of eternity trying to to wrap our mind around it. That we are given this amazing gift of grace. First, we're given mercy. He says, I'm not going to punish you. You deserve punishment, but I'm not going to punish you. And, and even the mentality, although this is not really the theologically correct way to say it, but he's not going to hold us accountable for our sins. But see, he really is. The accountability, according to the scripture I read last week, the accountability for our sins is death. But that's why he dies. Man, this, this makes no sense unless he really just does love us as much as the Bible says he does. Because of his grace, he has made us right in his sight and gives us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. Romans 5, 9, And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. You you know, switching to the subject of redemption now, you know the concept of redemption is God is buying us back. There's a lot of re-words in Scripture, right? Right? But he's going to buy us back. He's going to redeem us, which means something originally was established, and he's going to bring us back to that. Well, I've never experienced the originalness of what has been established until I actually have been redeemed. And then I only get parts of it. See, what he's trying to bring us back to is this connection and this relationship that he had with Adam and Eve, with humanity. And he looks at me and he says, you're part of humanity. I'm going to give you the same uh, gift that, that really only theoretically should belong to Adam and Eve if he redeemed them. I'm going to bring you back into a relationship where I have closeness and I have this personalness with you. But he, he's redeeming me with the crowd. I was never in the garden. I was never part of that perfection. But see, God created me in his image, and he breathes his life into me. He puts his spirit into me so that I can know him. And then he is, he is redeeming me and you and all of us together. He is redeeming us back to what? Him. And here's the crazy part of this story. Is he is buying us back, redeeming us, so we can be close to him. I... I, I that doesn't make sense. You gotta, you gotta pay for your friends, God. That's not what He's doing. He created us. We're His kids. 
He, he causes his friend, I'm going to read that in a second, but, but what he's really doing is this whole thing was built around us, and we're destroying it. I'm talking everything, society, creation, everything. We're destroying this connected relationship with God that he wanted us to have, and we did that by bringing sin in. This is why I'm always so horribly critical about the, the Go Green environmental movement, because we think we can redeem creation back by not having combustible engines. You redeem creation back, because God does talk about redeeming creation. Creation is groaning, waiting, waiting for the moment when it is redeemed. But you know how creation gets redeemed? By us surrendering to God. That's how the, the pieces start getting put back together. That's how God's perfection starts getting put back together. Is when we submit to a holy God and understand that he created creation, that he created us, that all of this is under his authority, and by submitting myself to him, I am pulling that creation back into this redemption story. But we think we can do it by driving electric cars. I think I told you guys this, but... Um, we ran an amendment, me and two other people ran an amendment during one of the bills where they were talking about electric cars and all this stuff. We ran an amendment that said uh, we would like to um, say that no electric vehicles that were made with components that used slave labor to be used to be brought into Colorado. You cannot have slave labor make the car. You say, well, they're made in factory. But the battery, all the stuff from it comes from slave labor around the world. Most, not all, but most comes from slave labor. The biggest group that got up and fought us was the Black Caucus. I don't understand that. Don't, don't ever talk to me about systemic racism or reparations or any kind of that stupidity when you're in favor of children in slave labor right now in Africa and China and places around the world. Don't tell me that stuff. I would love an electric car, but I just there's something in my spirit and head I just like, ah, I want to go there. Same reason I don't wear Nikes. That and they're too expensive, so... Redemption, God, Romans chapter 5, verse 8. That God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die. His great love. This is, this is more of the redemption part. Not being saved from, but redeemed to. Jesus does both of these, by the way, okay? There's not one better than the other. He does both of these. That Christ, that it is um, his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. Now here is, here is some of this redemption part. For since our friendship with God was restored, redeemed, restored, God brings us back into relationship. That's what redemption does. Is it takes you where you are and brings you right into God's presence. And the cool thing is, is, is when you surrender and submit to the Lord, he can redeem so many areas of your life that there are parts of your existence that God has specifically made you to be doing this and to be thinking this way and to be accomplishing this, but you're not doing it because sin got in there and messed everything up, and God says, I can redeem you right back to that, though. 
The way you're wired, it is God has designed you specifically for his purpose. He's got a plan for you. But for this to happen, you got to let him bring you back to what he planned for you rather than living the way you planned for you. This is part of redemption. And there's a bunch of cool things that come along with it. He says, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice into our wonderful new relationship with God. This is redeeming. I have a relationship with the guy who made everything because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. This is one of the things I've always seen this. It's just as, it's just as bad in the church, and I'm saying like pastors and things like that as it is outside. Um, but since I, I become a huge, powerful part of the political movement in our country, um, I've noticed this a lot that people will want to be friends or buddy up with somebody because of their money or their power or, or whatever. It doesn't matter who the person is. They can be so despicable. But if you've got a lot of power, I want to be, be associated with you. I want to be connected with you. Well, if you're so wealthy, then I want to be connected with you. We see this constantly. We see this in, in Hollywood. We see this in politics or whatever. These people can be, be horrible despicable, evil people. But if you got enough money and power, well, then I want to be, I want to like drop your name. Like, I know Brad Pitt. Actually, I do know a guy that knows Brad Pitt. Just while we're on the subject. He lives in Denver, and his name is Scott also, but he's, he grew up with Brad Pitt. So that makes me cool. And sometimes, I'm even like, yeah, it's like Brad Pitt and I kind of hang out because I went to coffee with this other guy once, right? So we're cool. In fact, sometimes people even mistake me for Brad Pitt. Is that a bridge too far? <laughs> but, but here's the thing. Process this with me, okay? You want a name drop? How about God. Think about what I'm saying. I mean, I, I'm not saying it like it's a joke. I'm, I'm saying, really, God just said right there that, that he has made us friends, that through the blood of Jesus we become friends with God, the guy that created the universe. The next time somebody drops names, tell them, say, hey, the ground you're walking on, know the guy that made that. <laughs> Name drop. You know the air you're breathing right now? Hang out with the guy that made that last week. Should have been this morning, but he, he wants to call you friend. That's redemption. That's pulling you back into this relationship. Acts chapter 13, uh, 3, verse 19. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Now this is the salvation side, right? Your sins are wiped away, but look what he says. Then times of refreshment will come. That's the redemption side. The salvation side is my sins are forgiven. Have you ever thought to yourself, what makes you entitled to having your sins forgiven? Think about that. We, we get so easily in, in American thinking, American church, we get so easily into this selfish entitlement mentality. I deserve. I deserve. 
Give me one reason why you would deserve to have your sins forgiven. That's what mercy is. We don't deserve to have our sins forgiven. We should be punished for our sins. We should be punished first just for the way that we take God so casually. We should, we should greatly be punished for that. But God, and then you add all the other stuff that is us. And he says, not only will I save you and wash your sins away, but I'll bring refreshment to your existence. We don't deserve that. Which, by the way, I, I, I have, it's been a while since I've spoke about this. And I'm going to, in the near future, I've, I've had some of you even ask me about this, and I will. I'm going to speak about this. But years ago, I went through a time of some pretty uh, severe depression. One of the things that I learned from that is one of the driving forces of depression into our lives is the, the idea that we get our eyes on all of the stuff of the world to a degree that it's difficult for God to bring his peace and his mercy into the situation. It's difficult for him to truly bring his peace and his grace into our existence because all of our plans, de desires, purpose, everything is wrapped up in stuff that's not God-driven. You say, well, I want to I excel at work. Nothing wrong with that. You should desire to be good at your job, especially if you want to keep it. Nowadays, it doesn't matter so much. But you should, ex you should desire to be good at your job. But what is the purpose? Because God created you. You're in, in his image. You are representing him, and you're breathing the air that he's giving you so you can represent him. That should be your primary. God, I want to be the best I can for you. But when we're going to work to be the best we can for our money and our place in life, our importance and all this stuff, it feeds this darkness that can consume you after a while. Because your purpose is not real purpose. It's, it's, it's a tainted purpose. It's dark purpose. But when you say, Jesus, today is the day you made. I am serving you. I'm rejoicing in you. All of a sudden, your purpose switches. And the light of Christ begins to shine much brighter. There are times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord. Not from the things you accomplish, but from the presence of the Lord. And he will again send you Jesus. So how do you get saved? I should answer that question, right? I mean, I've been talking about it. Shouldn't that be the, the next step? How do you get saved? This is, a, this is um, <clears throat> interesting. There's nowhere in Scripture uh, that says this is a salvation prayer. Pray this prayer and you'll be saved. But that's all of the emphasis the church puts on it, right? And by the way, we're going to do that because I'm going to put emphasis on it too. But with that being said, there's not actually a salvation prayer. I'm taking elements of Scripture and I'm putting together a prayer. But it doesn't say pray this prayer and you'll, you'll get saved. Join the church, you'll get saved. All the things that we do in American Christianity, they're not in Scripture when it comes to salvation. So how do you get saved? Acts chapter 16. This is Paul and Silas have been thrown in jail. They're in the stocks, all the stuff. Nothing good is happening. And then... They just begin to sing to the Lord. And I don't think it's because they were so excited to be there, or I don't think it's because they thought, as Christians, we should be singing right now. Right? That's what we do. Well, why can't we be more like Paul and Silas? We should be singing right now. 
I think it was just they really were enjoying the presence of God and then just began to worship him and sing, even in the jail. So then God, I think he kind of gets in the groove with them and maybe taps his foot and, and it busts the jail open or something. I don't know how it works. I don't, I don't claim to know all the intricacies of this. But the jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. He had thought they had taken off, and when he found that they were there, this whole thing clicked, I think, for him. And he brought them out, and he asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? That's the most important question we'll ever ask. How do I get saved? They replied, this is how. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, along with everyone in your household. Believe in Jesus. Now, this isn't the same thing I was mentioning earlier about John 3.16. This isn't a cognitive connection. This means my entire existence has now become this. Believed in this, in 2,000 years ago in Jewish culture would have said, this is my life. By believing, you are um, attaching yourself to, these, to this completely. We, in America, we think we can believe something, but it doesn't mean anything. But they wouldn't have had that understanding. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who lived in his household. So they explained who Jesus was. That's the point. That's what the word of the Lord is to them. Even at the hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. We see the salvation and the redemption here. The salvation, I need Jesus, and the redemption, they all rejoiced in this. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. This is after the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon the, the church. And then Peter gets up and preaches this amazing sermon. And at the end of it, uh, everybody's going, what do we do? Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other disciples, brothers, what should we do? How do I get saved? What should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God. As that's, this is, this is why I believe Satan manipulates society so much so that we don't take responsibility because repentance has to start with you taking responsibility. I'm a sinner and I need salvation. I need saved. If you don't get to that point, how do you get the rest? Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This openly declare means you're verbalizing, but you're also your existence is about it. You're turning your life to this. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you're saved. Why don't you bow your head with me? Lord, we need you. Above everything, we need you. Jesus, I, when I stand before God, I want you standing there covering me with your blood so that I'm right with God. Jesus, I need to be saved. I need to be saved from sin, from my sins. Lord, I need to be saved from coming judgment. I need to be saved from hell. Lord, I also want to be redeemed. I want to be brought into wonderful relationship with you, friendship with you, refreshing with you. 
the name of Jesus. God, I pray that over this whole place that we would see the importance of this right now. Holy Spirit, you've got to do this. Holy Spirit, convict us. Every one of us in this room, convict us. Jesus, I need you. I need I need to be forgiven. I need your salvation. I need to be washed clean of all my sins. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. You've got to ask him yourself in your own words. Nobody can get saved for you. You're not just automatically saved. But I want to ask the question. So, so just, just keep your head bowed. Let me ask this question. You say, I need Jesus right now. I need him to be my savior. I need to be saved. Yes, redeemed. But specifically saved, I need to be saved. Either you're not sure where you are with Jesus or you know that you're not saved. And you say, that's me. I'd like you to raise your hand real quick. Yeah. Yeah, this is, this is the importance of this. Because guys, we know where we are. We know where we are. So for everybody, but specifically those of you that raised your hands, let's just commit ourselves to him. Jesus, we need you. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. And Lord, I need that blood to cover me. That your blood will cover my mind, my spirit, my existence. And that I belong to you. Jesus' name. In Jesus' name we pray this, Lord. That we want to be friends of yours also, God. But we submit to you because you're our King. We surrender to you. You're our Lord. You've saved us, you've redeemed us, and you are redeeming us. God, we thank you for this. Lord, thank you for giving us mercy and thank you for giving us grace. In the name of Jesus. Amen. So I've said this for years and years that every time, every time I take communion, I always ask the Lord to forgive me. I always repent. And, and part of the reason is I, I don't want to take for granted what, what communion means. I, I'm taking communion because I believe Jesus really did die on the cross for me. His body was brutalized for me, and I don't want to take that casually, but I also don't want to do that in some kind of a jest. I think that's a very bad spiritual door that you open if you take communion in, in wrong attitude, wrong mentality. So I want us to, to do this together. Does anybody need one of these communion things? He's over here. 
anytime they're sitting at the door back there, uh, that means we're going to do this. We don't, we don't leave them sitting out, so that means we're going to do this. Um, but I, I, w- I want you to process this with me. Taking communion is saying, Jesus, I do believe that, that you died on the cross. I don't think this is just something I do because the church has told me to. I do this because I know Jesus died on the cross. I know his blood was poured out for my forgiveness. I know that his body was broken for my healing. And so therefore, I'm going to acknowledge it, but I'm also going to spiritually embrace this as what I believe, not just cognitively, but with my life. Right? This is why I always repent. Jesus, you you died on the cross for me. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Lord, as we get ready to take this, we are doing this because we acknowledge and remember that you did die for us. But Lord, I also pray as, as, as you said in, in your word to us, you're, you're telling us this, that your body was broken so we could specifically be physically healed. So, Lord, I pray that. I pray this all across the room, that as we take this, that this will be a point of contact for our faith and that you will heal our bodies. Things that we don't even know and things that we do know, that you will heal our bodies in Jesus' name. And we thank you for this. We thank you for what you did. And we remember this right now. Let's take the bread together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. In the same way, in other words, with the same spiritual, scriptural understanding of the Passover fulfillment, in the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, As often as you drink it, for every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, as we take this, we believe that you died for us, and we are announcing it to ourself. We're announcing it to everyone around us. But, Lord, I also believe we're speaking this into the spiritual realm, that I belong to you, Jesus. And I'm declaring this. You are coming to get us. We believe this. We stand on this. Thank you for forgiving us. Let's take the drink together. Lord, help us not just to remember this, but help us to announce it. Help us to tell others about you, to share this amazing thing that we know you've done for us, but you've also done for them. In Jesus' name. God, we thank you so much. Amen. Before noon tomorrow, God's going to give you the chance to share this. I just preached the whole thing. Just just re-preach it to them. Just tell somebody that Jesus loves them. Just do the best you can. Just tell somebody that Jesus loves them. And God will honor that in your life. It's a guarantee. So shake somebody's hand. Tell them how glad you are that they are here and that uh, we will see you Wednesday night. Have a great rest of your afternoon.